Welcome to the first episode of 2023 of Kentucky History and Haunts. My name is Jesse Bartholomew, and I was thinking of starting with a true crime story to kick off the year, and I was going through a list of serial killers from Kentucky, but then I remembered something about this other guy. This story fascinates me. Um, He wasn't a serial killer, but he did commit a pretty infamous crime. So we're going way back, uh, mid to late 1800s, For the story of this man who had everyone in the state of Kentucky fooled for decades. This is the story of James Honest Dick Tate. James William Tate was born on January 2nd, 1831 to Nancy and Colonel Thomas Tate. He was born near Frankfort, Kentucky, where he lived for most of his life. His dad was a veteran of the War of 1812, and his mom was the daughter of a prominent figure, Reverend John Taylor. Uh, Taylor was a famous pioneer preacher of the Baptist Church. He wrote a couple books. Um, So James came from a respected family, religious figures, war veterans, hardworking people. Though I don't know where he was educated, I know that he was, and in 1848, when he was about 17, he took his first official job as a clerk in the Frankfurt Post Office, where, by his, quote, genial manners, politeness, and ability, advanced himself to universal favor. And a common theme throughout the bulk of this story is that wherever he went, Mr. Tate was well-liked and well-respected. His political career began in 1854. Um, From what I understand, this wasn't really a position that he was asking for, but because of his background and his reputation, the way he carried himself, his family, he caught the attention of Governor Lazarus Powell, who appointed him to the position of Assistant Secretary of State. Two years later, in 1856, he married a woman named Lucy Hawkins, And in 1858, they had their first son, Howard, who unfortunately passed away. I think he was just three years old. They went on to have one daughter, Edmonia, and we'll talk about her later. In the late 1850s, Tate resigned from his position as Assistant Secretary of State because Charles Moorhead was elected governor of Kentucky, and he had become a member of the Know Nothing Party. And so basically, Tate was like, yeah, I'm not going to work for this guy. Uh, Moorhead's life story gets a little tumultuous, so maybe I'll do an episode on him at some point, or do like a Kentucky Governor series. I don't know why I haven't done that yet. That could be fun. We've had some colorful governors. (laughs) So anyway, uh, Tate was back in his position of uh, Assistant Secretary of State in 1860, and the people loved him, his colleagues loved him. In 1865, he also began serving as assistant clerk to the Kentucky House of Representatives. And then by the mid-1860s, he's running for office. So not just an appointed position, but he wants to be elected to the position of Kentucky State Treasurer. I'll read you a letter uh, to the editor from the Louisville Daily Courier from December of 1866. Quote, I see in your paper and other sheet articles written from different parts of this renowned commonwealth calling for James W. Tate of Frankfurt as a candidate on the Democratic ticket for treasurer. 
I think from the indications that he will be nominated without a dissenting voice by that convention. Hey, Twyla. (laughs) I've known him long and well, and I think he is the man for that office. When he has served out his term, the whole people will greet him with the grateful plaudit, well done, true and faithful servant. Because I know what happens, this letter is hilarious. You'll get it later. Um, Tate is also described in a Courier-Journal article in 1867 as, quote, one of the cleverest gentlemen in Kentucky. They had no idea. Now I'm going to give Twyla a little attention, and I'll be right back. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and... What do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. For those of you who might not know, Twyla is my dog, Uh, one of my dogs. She's the baby of the family. She's a little pit bull mix. Sweet as can be. Requires so much attention. She is a very needy little girl. Um, So if you ever hear anybody crying in the background, it's probably Twyla. Anyway, James Tate, he wins his election. He becomes Kentucky state treasurer in 1867 and goes on to be reelected every two years for the next two decades. Most of the time he goes unchallenged. When someone does run against him, he wins by a landslide. So, um, August of 1873, I found an article from the Interior Journal. He's been treasurer for about six years and he's up for re-election again. And this article says, quote, All Democrats should remember that on next Monday, they'll be expected to vote for a candidate for state treasurer. Do not fail to keep it in your memory that James W. Tate is the Democratic candidate for that office. He has discharged his duties to the satisfaction of his constituents and is now before the people for re-election. He has proven himself worthy of your confidence, and you should not, from any kind of negligence, lose sight of him next Monday. There's an article from 1881, so almost a decade later, And it's about how the Democratic State Executive Committee decided not to even have a convention that year. Um, They felt so comfortable with their position, um, and they felt like no one could challenge Tate especially, so they just didn't even have a convention. Next, he's mentioned in this little article titled, Kentucky Catechism for Children. And I hope you're not over there listening to this going, oh my god, Jesse, stop reading from old-timey newspapers. I'll never stop. I love newspaper articles from the 18th, 1800s, um, and the best way to read them is verbatim because they're just so great. So this one especially caught my attention. Um, I didn't retype it, so I'm reading it from the old article, so bear with me because it, it might take me a, a second to read a couple of the words because um, it's kind of faded, but I love this. It's called uh, Kentucky Catechism for Children, and it goes like this. Who discovered Kentucky? Daniel Boone. What are its chief productions? Whiskey, tobacco, racehorse, and kernels. 
Who is the oldest man in the state? John G. Graddock of Paris. Who is the most popular man? Dick Tate. Who is Dick Tate? James W. Tate, state treasurer. Why is he called Dick Tate? Because he dictates his election without leaving his office. For what is Kentucky chiefly noted? For its killings and no hangings by law. What else? For the great rapidity with which its murderers become insane immediately after killing people. Who is the greatest governor in Kentucky? Governor Blackburn. What is the duty of a governor to pardon convicts out of the penitentiary? Who is the greatest farmer in the state? Agricultural Bowman. Who is the greatest bicycle rider? Dick Tate. What is the name of his bicycle? Mary Jane. Who is the handsomest man? Sam Gaines. Who is the most religious? Henry Stanton. Who is the handsomest young man? Yuri Woodson of Owensboro. Who is the prettiest woman? All of them. So that's how the, the little story goes. Um, apparently, James Tate was also known for riding his bicycle all the time. He was an avid cyclist. So I just thought that was cute. And finally, after like 15 years of this guy maintaining his position as state treasurer, we see someone speak out against career politicians. So I, I think this was a letter to the editor. So it wasn't like someone reporting, uh, a reporter was writing this. It was just some citizen's opinion. Um, it was written into the Owingsville Outlook and reprinted in the Interior Journal, which was the Stanford newspaper. And the person writing in says, it can't be healthy for a man to stay in office this long, and it's about time for James Tate to step down. And the, the writer goes on to say, you know, he's done a good job, I've got nothing against him, but this can't be good, and it's time for him to retire. I thought that was really interesting. Um, so this was, this was like the late 18, sorry, this was like the mid 1880s when this was written. So there are a few people out there saying, isn't it time for this guy to go? But it, not a lot. Okay, the, the general public, I think, still loved, respected, and trusted James Tate a great deal. Now, also in the mid 1880s, there was a bit of drama in Tate's personal life. In July of 1886, the Tate's only surviving child, Edmonia, got married secretly in New York and sent her folks a telegram about it afterwards. Edmonia was 22, quote, of matchless beauty in face and figure, and the inheritor of those winning graces of mind and manners which have made her father the most popular official in Kentucky. Edmonia, she went by Mona, went to school in Louisville, and she lived here for several years, and her beau, Alfred Martin, was from Lexington. And it sounds like he was a good enough guy, but her parents were not happy about their marriage. They thought she was too young, she should have waited, and I think the marriage was pretty spur of the moment. It wasn't like they had a long engagement. I think they both found themselves vacationing up north and just decided to make a go of it. 
It does sound like once they came back to Kentucky, the Tates were accepting of him. Um, James Tate even tried to help secure a government job for Mr. Martin, but it was a hiccup, and for a little while there, his personal life was, you know, a little topsy-turvy, but nothing serious, right? So, back to Tate's career, um, I want to reiterate that he was up for re-election every two years, which meant every year and a half you would start to see lots of glowing reviews of him in the papers, just gushing about what an honest and dedicated man he was. Even up to 1887, in the Kentucky Advocate, it reads, quote, As treasurer and one of the managers of the state finances, his judgment is held in high esteem, and his integrity, prudence, and foresight are regarded as of the highest order. Which brings us to March of 1888, where all the newspapers start to change their tune, and the front page of the Courier-Journal, March 21st, read, Defaulted, James W. Tate, treasurer of the state of Kentucky, short in his accounts over $100,000, Governor Buckner explodes bombshell in the legislature that will reverberate over every hill and valley in the state. So it goes on to say, the Democratic executive exposes the crime and suspends the criminal who is believed to have joined the American colony in Canada. The missing funds supposed to have been loaned to unfaithful friends. The I told you so's bob up and serenely say they expected crookedness. So some people did come out of the woodwork and say, we told you this guy was up to no good. But for most people, this was, as the article said, a bombshell. And everyone was scrambling to figure out just what to do with this situation. I mean, it's not something that they had been confronted with before. So they knew they had to impeach him. They had to replace him. They had to figure out how to explain that no one noticed how much money was missing. And ultimately, they really wanted to find him. They chose a replacement in Judge S.G. Sharp from Lexington. Um, and they started the impeachment trial pretty quickly, still in March. They also passed, unanimously, a resolution for the government to offer a $5,000 reward for information leading to the arrest of the suspect at large. According to my little website that calculates this stuff for me, $5,000 in 1888 money would be like $150 grand today, which seems like a lot of money for a reward but let me tell you how much Tate absconded with. He misappropriated slash stole $247,128 in 1888, which equates to about $7.7 million in 2023 money. During the impeachment trial, we hear from witnesses, and one of them was Auditor Hewitt. He testified that he last saw James Tate on March 15th of that year, and then for days after that, no one was around performing the duties of treasurer. So Hewitt told the court that there's supposed to be this settlement made, I think, once every two years with the treasurer, the state auditor, and the secretary of state, and that settlement did not happen which 
red flags, right? Why are we not doing this? The settlement was supposed to take place in January and Tate kept making excuses as to why he wasn't ready and couldn't do it yet. So finally, by March, a few government officials kind of stepped in and said, look, Mr. Tate, you can't delay this any longer. We've got we've to do this. And so Tate was like, all right, I'll be ready in a couple of days. It's, it's no problem. It's fine. They were finally able to start this process in March, and Auditor Hewitt compared the information he got from the banks to the books that James Tate was keeping, and that's when he finds this $200,000 deficit, which at first the auditor thought this could be explained by outstanding checks that are owed to us that will be coming in soon to even that number out. And I think he was just maybe trying to give Tate the benefit of the doubt because, you know, you have this guy that's been in this position for 20 years and done an honest stand-up job. Maybe you wouldn't suspect him of stealing right off the bat. I don't know. Uh, they also asked Hewitt if he knew if anyone was helping Tate or if he knew where Tate may have gone. And Hewitt said, I think he was acting alone and I have no idea where he is. So then Hewitt was replaced on the stand by another witness. This is Tate's assistant, James Hawkins, who also happened to be his brother-in-law. Hawkins said that he last saw Tate on the evening of the 14th. He said he didn't see Tate take any money. He didn't know anything about a misappropriation of funds, and he had no idea where Tate may have gone either. He did say that Tate was in the habit of, quote, advancing money to claim against the state, but whether or not he accommodated other persons, the witness said he had no knowledge. He did admit that the accounts had not been properly balanced since December of the previous year, but Hawkins blamed this on, quote, insufficient clerical forces in the office. So he said, yeah, you know, our books maybe haven't been right, but that's because we don't have the manpower. The real damning witness was Mr. Henry Murray, who was called up after Hawkins. Murray worked in the auditor's office, and he said that he actually saw Tate leaving with, quote, an unusually large roll of money, which he placed in his left-hand pantaloons pocket, and that he also had a plush coin purse filled with gold. The result of this impeachment trial was that Tate was found guilty by a unanimous vote, and shortly after, Judge Short was confirmed to fill the position until the next election. For a little while after the disappearance, there was speculation that Tate had killed himself. I don't know where this rumor started, but I think people felt like he was in such big trouble that no one in their right mind would have tried to keep running. Uh, you know, with that huge reward to find him. People were after him and they were going to stay after him. Those rumors of suicide were quashed when in May of 88, his family admitted they'd heard from him. James Tate had been writing to his family, telling them he was fine, he was safe, he was healthy. And of course, this infuriated the government and law enforcement. 
but you know, back then you could write letters home and not be traced. So very frustrating. Fast forward about a year, April of 89, the Owensboro Messenger reported that Tate was enjoying life in Japan. He had been sending letters to friends in Frankfurt, and he told them how great it was living in Japan because he didn't have to bother disguising himself, and they had the best persimmons in the world. He was very excited about those persimmons. These are not the messages of a remorseful man. And I also have to wonder if any money was possibly being sent with these letters to friends, um, which is then, of course, hidden before they're turned over to the authorities. I don't know, just a guess, but um, I think it's interesting that so many of his friends continued to support him afterwards, especially those that were still in politics. But it's also around this time in 89 that a judge approved the sale of some of Tate's stuff to make up for a little bit of what he took off with. So they start running ads in the paper for a commissioner sale at the Franklin Circuit Court. They have a public auction, cash, buy the barrel, 100 barrels of whiskey, made by Feibel and Crab in Eminence, which um, Feibel and Crab is Old Blue Ribbon. So they sold his bourbon. I don't know how much they made. I imagine it wasn't $200,000. And then they made another announcement that August that there would be another commissioner sale, this time for his uh, 37 shares of the Frankfurt Water Company stock and 10 shares of the Glen Mary Coal and Coke Company stock. So it's interesting, you know, they're selling his stuff. What about his wife, right? I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Um, First, let me tell you about when the authorities thought they were closing in on James Tate. Uh, In 1890, the sheriff of Swain County, North Carolina, announced that he had captured James Tate. Turns out it wasn't him. Uh, But a year later, Kentucky officials received a letter from Vancouver. And again, they thought there was this glimmer of hope that they might catch him. Officials in Vancouver believed that Tate was in China and that they knew his exact location. And so they had this detective agency requesting a sample of Tate's handwriting for comparison. They did mail a sample of his writing to this detective agency, but nothing came of it. It wasn't him. Years passed, no sign of James Tate. In 1893, some people started talking about a pardon. A group of his friends were trying to appeal to then-Governor Brown to pardon James Tate. He still had a lot of people supporting him and actually hoping he would return to Frankfurt. And the public actually started thinking, well, maybe he will come back and just reassimilate into our community. In that time period, it wouldn't be that unusual. It's sort of like how Harry Edward Kilgore was able to come back to Bowling Green after those murders. Because, you know, without the 24-hour news cycle and social media, a person could come back to town after committing a crime. And if enough time has passed, it's just, it kind of just nobody cares or nobody notices. Um, So the point is, he could have come back to Frankfurt and potentially not been arrested or publicly shamed or anything. So in December of 93, there's a formal petition put together for the pardon of James Tate. 
Quote, the petition recites that Tate has already suffered much by voluntary banishment, even if he is guilty, that he has expiated whatever misdeeds in this particular he may have heedlessly committed, that there is reason to believe Tate was more sinned against than sinful, that if he took any of the public funds improperly, it was from an excessive amiability and disinclination to say no to his friends than through premeditated desire to defraud the Commonwealth. This petition by December had more than 400 signatures. So they're in here saying, you know, it really wasn't his fault. Um, his friends really manipulated him into doing this for them. Um, I'm not sure I'm buying it, and I'm not sure the public did either. As for Mrs. Tate, it really seems like she was abandoned. In January of 94, it's reported that she's having to sell off what land she has left because she was sick and she needed the money. To raise it, quote, she was obliged to dispose of the little property which she owns. And this is only six years after Tate disappeared. So, I mean, it just seems to me like whatever version of this is true, whether he planned it ahead of time and just took off with all of it, or he was loaning it out to his friends and family over time, he didn't take care of his wife. She was in trouble financially, and she was sick, and she was alone. So the last article I have about this whole story is from April 17th, 1894, and it reads, quote, her wish not gratified, Mrs. Lucy Hawkins Tate, wife of James W. Tate, died yesterday afternoon. Her cherished wish that her husband be pardoned before her death was not gratified. So even though he seems to have left her high and dry, it sounds like she was still loyal to him. She wanted him to be pardoned. I thought that was interesting. So that's the story of James Honest Dick Tate. Not so honest after all, jokes on us. He was never found, the money was never found. He got away with it. Of course, he was never pardoned, but I think it's safe to say he probably didn't care. Moral of the story? Politicians can't be trusted, especially not career ones. Have a great rest of your week, everybody. Leave a review if you haven't already. Leave me a tip if you feel so inclined. Use the link in the show notes. Go there, scroll to the bottom. I think you can do it via PayPal, maybe Venmo. Tell your friends about the show and stay tuned. I am trying to resurrect the Pine Overcoat podcast. It's just there are not enough hours in the day. Can we talk to somebody about that? Go ahead and subscribe so that you are alerted when new episodes finally drop on the Pine Overcoat podcast. Uh, I have one in the works about old-timey beauty routines. They're hilarious and dangerous and ridiculous. All right, that's it, folks. Thanks for listening. Until next time.